0: Hello, everyone. It's me, Rain Wilson, the host of Baha'i Blogcast, obviously. And I wanted to direct your attention to another podcast that I was involved with as both a narrator and a producer. And that is a very exciting tribute to Abdul Baha called Ambassador to Humanity. It's available wherever all good podcasts are found. I would ask you to look it up, Ambassador to Humanity, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can like it, rate it, especially give us some nice reviews, send links to your friends. It's going to be nine episodes all about the life of Abdu'l-Bahá. Each episode's about 35 minutes long. It's tons of history, incredible stories. Um, Quotes and writings of Abdu'l-Bahá's talks he gave, his travels, Uh, it's really exciting. Here is what the description says. This series of nine podcasts, produced especially for the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, recounts the life and work of this unique figure in human history, celebrating his life, his legacy, and his enduring influence on humanity. It includes eyewitness accounts from those who encountered Abdu'l-Bahá and commentary from those who have studied his life and example. It is written and produced by the amazing Rob Weinberg. If you haven't heard my interview with him, it is really fantastic. He's an incredible uh, writer, author, producer, and scholar, and historian. Uh, It's co-narrated by the great actor Parisa Fitzhendley, and also Justin Baldoni, and Penn Badgley, and many, many more uh, terrific actors brought their voices to the telling of this incredible tale. Um, as of recording this, about five episodes have been put out. Let me see here what these episodes are. We've got The Early Years, Episode One, Episode Two, The Ma- Master in Akka, Episode Three, The Journey West, Episode Four, A Vision of Racial Equality, and em- Episode Five, the March of Women. So some of the episodes are based on issues that Abdu'l-Bahá directly spoke about and uh, worked on. And some are more of his history, and all of them are chock-a-block with incredible stories, unforgettable, very memorable stories. And we hear from all kinds of incredible experts and historians as we go along Um Giving their uh, perspective on Abdul Baha. So, ambassador to humanity, please tell your friends sign up, log on, follow, subscribe, rate, like, review, all of that nonsense. And now let's get to this particular Baha'i blogcast with the great Elena Mostakova. Ladies and gentlemen of Baha'i Blogcast, Hello, it's me, your host, Rain Wilson. So thrilled for today's episode um, with, oh boy, I don't even know how to describe what Elena does and what her work is, but certainly a therapist, a psychotherapist, but much, much more than that. And now an author uh, with a fantastic new book we're gonna be talking about called Global Unitive Healing. And it truly is an exciting piece of work. But first things first, Elena Mostakova, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so pleased to be
0: with you. Excellent. Now, I very poorly introduced you. I really should have had something better worked out. So would you mind put humility aside and just introduce yourself so that people can get to know you better and the kind of work that you do in your areas of focus?
1: Thank you, Rain. I'm an educator. I'm an educator who uh, grew up in Eastern Europe, um, and I came to the U.S. uh, at the age of 30 uh, because I wanted to understand more about human motivation. Uh, My background was originally in language, literature, philosophy, and then I moved into psychology and human development. But what I really, really wanted to understand is one question and that was why we betray ourselves
2: <laughs>
1: growing now, up
2: now what do
0: you why, s- when you say that why do we betray ourselves what do you what do you mean by that like how do we sabotage ourselves or how do we betray our values
1: well both but on a most fundamental level we betray that which most deeply speaks to us our values and only our deep, also our deepest longings. And I grew up in communism, where people really uh, reported on each other. The whole system was held into place by an intricate system of informers. Mm-hmm. And so, you want to talk about betrayal and the life and death cost of betrayal? I saw it firsthand. And so, I've always wanted to understand how it is possible that we do things like that. And also how is it possible that people sometimes choose to go to labor camps rather than betray others. Um, and so it was clear to me that there is a lot we know deep down and we often choose not to listen. So that was what took me back into uh, a doctorate in psychology and human development, just really trying to understand this process and, uh, That took me into the research of critical moral consciousness, uh, which was actually my first book. And uh, I taught for many years in a psychology program, uh, trained clinicians, and moved gradually more and more into private practice. But above everything else, I see myself as somebody who just accompanies fellow humans on this complicated journey of really trying to understand what we are about, what our lives are about, and and how we can feel whole.
0: That is so exciting, and I can't wait to dig into that. Um, so tell me a little bit more, since we're here, on your, your life journey. You've lived in some really interesting places and done some fascinating work. You were in Africa for a while, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. I was in Africa. I did a little bit of teaching there, and uh, I had the experience of teaching in Zimbabwe, which was at the time newly liberated, former Rhodesia. So Mm -hmm. that was a very profound and interesting experience. Um, But sadly, I was also able to witness there how ideology um, replaces critical examination over and over again again i came from an ideological background and i found people trying to break free from one type of ideology by replacing it with another type and then i've also traveled throughout uh, europe and came to the u.s and found yet another ideology and that was the consumer ideology so it just seems to me that uh we have such a hard time moving beyond ideologies and listening deeply to what feels right and true and what doesn't Yeah, and asking the hard questions.
0: Yes. When I was a child, uh, we lived in Nicaragua uh, right during the communist revolution, the Sandinista revolution. And there was great economic injustice and land was being stolen from people and given to the rich oligarchs. And... Um, There was gross unfairness, Uh, there was not a free press, Um, and the Sandinistas took over and there was great rejoicing, yay, and a lot of health clinics were opened up and and a communist ideology was put into place. And fast forward to now, guess what's happening? There's not a free press, the land is being taken away from poor people and given to oligarchs, and we see the exact same system in place as was there in 1971.
1: Exactly. Thank you. Perfect example. Yes.
0: Yeah. So um, I always talk to my uh, kind of lefty communist friends about this example, and they always say, and maybe you can help me with this, they always say, well, that's just because they're corrupt. But if they really were following kind of Marxist socialist ideology, they would be sharing the wealth. It's just because there's a couple of bad apples at the top of Mm -hmm. the system. And Mm -hmm. that's why it's turned out to be a mess. How would you respond to that?
1: There's a fundamental misunderstanding here. When you look at uh, human growth and development, when you look at the adult lifespan, you realize that we uh, evolve through a lot of internal conflicts and struggles, which we always externalize and we create, we project onto our social environments, the conflicts that we carry And it takes a lot of journeying, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of journeying for us to evolve to a place of deep self-understanding, balanced living with ourselves, and a spiritual awakening, really, without which there can be no social justice. Hmm. Because when you're talking about social justice by the mere act of grabbing and redistributing resources, you're not taking into consideration the driving force of reality, and that is consciousness. Human consciousness has to evolve, and it is spiritual awakening that fosters the evolution of human consciousness and our recognition of higher realities, of of deeper and higher impulses within ourselves, which then uh, motivates us to seek justice for our fellow humans, to understand interdependence, to um, to realize that what we need and long for, others need and long for too, and that will then sustain a more just system into place. But without spiritual self-awareness and awareness of reality, just the Mm, physical redistribution of resources is not going to protect us from from the lower impulses of human nature.
0: That's so beautifully said, and and again, I'm truthfully saying this. This is like right up my alley. I love this kind of conversation. It excites me so much. I'm going to say this throughout the podcast. I want everyone to pick up a copy of Global Unitive Healing. Um, we could talk about the title, Elena. Maybe you need a little catchier title. Um, I don't, I don't know what that would be, but, um, no, it's, it's such a terrific book. I was stayed up late last night reading it. Um, and it digs into so much of this stuff, but I love what you just said about a spiritual evolution of consciousness. And then you kind of tipped your hat towards kind of a, a, a profoundly deeper compassion, that without which we can't make these changes. But I guess going back to this analogy of like Nicaragua, so a lot of my politically left friends, and please help me to understand this so I know how to speak to them, uh, because I think you have insights here uh, that are are impressive and inspiring. And that is, there's often talk about, hey, we need to empower the disempowered. And this is very much in close alignment with the Baha'i faith, right? We need to Empower the disempowered. They need to give a voice to the voiceless. There have been people that have been held back and oppressed systematically for centuries, and we need to reverse the course of that. But oftentimes, like if you listen to Russell Brand, who's one of my favorite kind of speakers and educators and podcast hosts and um, and and thinkers out there, it's always a discussion about how do we give put power in the hands of the people that don't have the power. And that again goes with the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And that's what that was like, Hey, we need to give power now. Sounds good. Right? Sounds good. Oh, these people don't have power. The indigenous people, the Indian people, people of color, um, people that have been oppressed. We need to give them more power. This is very much in alignment in some ways with the Baha'i faith. And yet it doesn't work Because essentially you're just looking at power redistribution. So not just resources, but decision-making. So how would you respond to that?
1: You know, this is a good example of the danger of half-truth. And that's what we seem to live in Mm. quite a bit, half-truth. So Mm. this is another half-truth. Yes, nobody should be oppressed. And especially when we have multi-generational history of oppression, that has to be corrected. But to assume that that is equal to empowering is a half truth because empowerment is also an inner condition as well as an outer access to decision making. Hmm. And so it, it just, the inner and the outer cannot be separated. In fact, I think we have a wonderful quote in. Uh, in the Baha'i writings that is very relevant to that. If you would mind, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to share it. This is a yeah. letter from Shogi, written on behalf of uh, Shogi Effendi, which is the guardian, who's the guardian of the Baha'i faith. And the letter was written in 1933. And he says, we cannot segregate the human heart from the environment outside us and say that once one of these is reformed, everything will be improved. Man is organic with the world. His inner life molds the environment and is itself also deeply affected by it. The one acts upon the other and every abiding change in the life of man is the result of these mutual reactions. So, you know, this is a profound profound explanation of the dynamic of, of reality we we cannot say that we're just going to reform the environment and that will reform the human heart or vice versa mm. so genuine empowerment is spiritual empowerment as it's an inside out process and it certainly goes hand in hand with the right to justice justice which is social empowerment access to having a voice and a say in the social system in which one lives. But uh, it is truly a half-truth to only speak about social external empowerment and not look at the inner condition. Oftentimes when people have been oppressed for many generations, there are uh, internalized oppression breeds its own problems in behavior. Probably the greatest example of that is uh, the generation of our mothers who come from many, many centuries of disempowerment of women. And in order to survive, they have developed all kinds of passive-aggressive ways to to find some indirect way to power. Is that a solution? No, but it's an adaptation. And so until a woman is spiritually empowered from within even if you give her a voice, which she should, everybody should have a voice and access. Um, it, it, it's not clear how it will end up being used.
0: That's fantastic. And and we've talked about this on the show so many times that we, like racism, you can pass all this legislation about reg- racism and we continually pass it. And, it, and it's important to pass, um, obviously. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. um, but that... But off, the work seems to end there, um, and there isn't that work done on the transformation of the human heart. So we have all of these laws, but we have maybe the same amount of kind of hatred and distrust. I'll just speak for white people. I, I can't <laughs> speak for the other side, obviously. But you know, racism, hatred, distrust um, of, of people of color, um, even though the laws are in place uh, protecting them, it hasn't really shifted our culture
1: one reason for that it just occurred to me as you were speaking about this is uh, that we don't think particularly deeply about what power is and we confuse power with force a lot but uh, in uh, the beginning of of global unity of healing philosopher ken wilbur has actually written a foreword in which he speaks about uh, the five different types of wholeness and what it means to become whole and really power is about wholeness. Hmm. And and when he speaks about becoming whole, he speaks about waking up, which is our spiritual awakening, growing up, which is our development into higher orders of consciousness, where we really see fellowship and oneness, cleaning up, cleaning up our shadow. And we all have shadows that we otherwise project onto society. Um, Can you speak a little bit account- more about
0: that for people? I know because... Frankly, I've been in therapy for 20 years, a little bit about the shadow side, but um, other people might not know about. What does that mean, clean up your shadow?
1: Well, part of the process of ego formation from the moment we're thrust into this material plane is that we have to develop a sense of who we are relative to this vast and often overwhelming reality that we're thrust into. And so ego becomes an organizer of experience and it has a function to to filter and organize experience. So that means that in the early stages of ego formation, we can't be equally present to everything. There's certain things that are filtered out, things that are suppressed, things that are ignored, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But as we develop into further stages of our growth um, and sense of self, we become more and more able to become fully present to different aspects of ourselves that may not be necessarily so beautiful, deeper fears, uh, inherited patterns of behavior, internalized beliefs, assumptions that are often multi-generational, And, um, Automatic behaviors that we're not even aware of, that are literally living us. Those are examples of our shadow. And that (laughs) shadow, when it's not understood, is just always projected on somebody else. Whether it's our partner, whether it's another social group, it's projected outward. Hmm. And, of course, it's a psychologically trite statement that the things in others that most annoy us and most aggravate us are things that hit close to home, perhaps things that we um, have aspects of in ourselves, but we haven't dealt with them, we haven't acknowledged them. And so this is the disowned part of us that has to be put somewhere else onto somebody else. And so that's where uh, spiritual awakening and or waking up and growing up, as Ken Wilber speaks about it, is very powerful because each next step. Stage of development is like a Russian doll. It is it becomes more comprehensive. It encompasses earlier stages, but it understands more about mm-hmm. ourselves and allows us to accept more about ourselves, and therefore need to project less outwardly.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic, and I I think uh, society can have a shadow side too. I'd noticed in this COVID years, like the first time I took a plane trip and I had been reading these uh, articles about people raging in airports and I saw it in front of my eyes. This guy just threw a fit and was screaming at the guards and and they brought in the police and they arrested him. And like, there's there's this kind of, and, and I've noticed this on driving. Um, there's all this road rage going on and people are screaming at each other and cutting each other off. And it's like this, uh, this shadow anger. Um, mm-hmm. now part of that is the great partisan political divide in our country right now. So there's ever more kind of hatred and, and distrust going on, but, but also the the COVID and we've been trapped in our houses and there's a lot of fear. And I feel like this fear comes out psh, sideways in, in rage culturally. Would you agree?
1: Completely. And you know, you gave us some scenarios and reasons for fear. I would just say that when I think of different social contexts, uh, the reasons for fear may be slightly different, but they don't ever disappear. Okay, Fear is very much uh, part of our human condition. It is scary to be in a vast world, much of which we really don't understand. And also, we all come from rather oppressive and unjust social environments that do breed fear in one way or another. Mm. And so, again, we come back to this uh, dynamic between the human heart and the social environment. The human heart fraught with fear for many reasons because of uh, social and family environments that are a lot less than healthy Mm. projects that fear back on the social and family environment and it's this dance back and forth until we begin to awaken and take ownership of ourselves and begin to understand what is driving us and begin to transform that and become much more intentional in the kind of social interactions, relationships that we establish.
0: So let's go back to the foreword by Ken Wilber, because um, uh, I kind of interrupted that. The, what was that wake up, grow up? This is fascinating. What, what else? Did we miss in that? Clean
1: up was the third one. Cleaning up was the third one. The fourth one is showing up, showing up to every aspect of reality. And the fifth one is opening up. And I'll speak to those last two in a minute. And in other places, he also adds linking up with each other and lifting each other up. So they become seven in the forward. He speaks of only five. But uh, the fourth one showing up is about showing up to the true, the good, and the beautiful in life. We seem to be just showing up to material reality a lot, physical reality, Mm. um, and we're not recognizing spiritual reality, the oneness of of truth, beauty, and goodness that every soul, every heart longs for. We don't show up for that. We don't speak about that.
2: Mm. We don't
1: acknowledge that so showing up fully being fully present to to the to the depth of our longings to to the soul of each other as well as to our social and physical circumstances that kind of fullness of showing up is an aspect of wholeness and then he also speaks about opening up to our many different types of intelligence because when we speak about intelligence again in a in a very uh, unidimensional uh, social life we think about cognitive intelligence but we have dozens of different types of intelligence and people come in different configurations of kinesthetic and and musical and all kinds of other intelligences and being able to open up to their spiritual intelligence there's emotional intelligence there's interpersonal intelligence etc mm. etc cetera, et cetera. so being able to open up to the full spectrum of our intelligences and bringing all of that to our presence to our showing up mm. so wholeness is a profound way of coming into our power and mm. as we come into a power we can speak with a voice that is irresistible And I think we have wonderful social examples of that. Nelson Mandela, Mm. Martin Luther King. Mm. I mean, they came forth with such fullness of presence and inner power that they compelled social environments that had no interest in giving them any voice or place. They compelled these social environments to hear them and they were heard. Gandhi is another example. Yeah. So that was back to tying it back together to your earlier comments, talking to your leftist friends, and, and what does it mean to fully empower groups of people or individuals to come into our power?
0: So I, w- I really want to ask you more about how you became a Baha'i and a little bit about your faith journey, but I'm going to put that aside because this is you're getting right now into the meat of the book. Um. You say in the book, bearing witness to these journeys, um, this is, you know, the, the people that you've counseled over the years, I have realized that the evolutionary journey of humanity is the development journey of a single human writ large. And this is what um, is so exciting about this book and the Baha'i perspective on the therapeutic journey that you've uncovered. Uh, you say again... Uh, individual trajectories fit organically within a larger picture. And that's what you're discussing here, right? This is yeah. This is like, we always talk in the, we use the example in the Baha'i Faith all the time of like, oh, we used to be tribes and then we were villages and then we were cities and then we were city-states and then we were nations and now we need to think globally. And that all sounds good. But you're also talking about, okay, yeah, that's that's our organizational structures. But you're talking about The uh, blooming of consciousness, the evolution of consciousness from, you know, I'm going to butcher this, but, you know, I imagine egoic self, like must kill Mm -hmm. deer to feed family, you know, must breed. Um, And there's that part of ourselves. And then it's kind of like must have family, must have larger tribe. But now I'm talking like a caveman. I hope people don't I hope I'm not canceled for making fun of cavemen talk like that's offensive. Cavemen didn't really talk that way, um, but um, so it goes. It goes onwards and onwards um, into, and you're talking about this. Um, well, I, I'll I'll leave it to you. So you're talking about this blooming of consciousness on an individual level and on a global level, and how these two things go hand in hand. So this seems to be one of the main focuses of of your writing.
1: You are right that we have to understand our individual journey of evolution in order to also see where it fits in the collective picture. So I do have to develop first an interpersonal consciousness of my tribe, my group, my ethnic group, understand something about my belonging there, which is a level of social consciousness as well. But as I understand that, I also eventually start to transcend it if I continue to develop. And as I begin to transcend that, I also begin to understand that there is a larger place in which I stand beyond my ethnic group. There is a place of values and principles and frames of reference that define me. And I speak about that as the institutional self. And that's a, a whole new level of consciousness, individual and collective consciousness. And then, as we establish this level of individual and social consciousness, we begin to realize that um, even those are sometimes limited, and we have to look for universal, because different uh, institutions, different organizations hold up different values. And so, what is going to be the common ground? How are we going to negotiate among different institutional selves, individuals, or among different uh, institutional cultures? There has to be some common ground. And though that's when we begin to move towards universal and a recognition of oneness, interdependence, universal spiritual principles. And that's what I talk about in the second part of the book, that as people heal they begin to find a universal spiritual language that speaks to their higher nature in a way that's beyond claims and beliefs, that mm-hmm. is based in universal spiritual principles, mm-hmm. and that language unites us across our diversity, and we co-create that language as we work together. I almost treat these principles as, as an alphabet. There is a universal alphabet of of human reality on, on this small planet. There is also a universal spiritual alphabet of reality beyond human reality. Quantum physicists are now saying reality is consciousness, primarily consciousness, and matter is a limited expression of consciousness. These are universal principles, but as we act, out of these principles as we make sense of them and we interact with each other increasingly trying to base ourselves on these principles. We create, we co-create a spiritual language that heals us, unites us and allows us to, to become generative together. So these are fascinating individual and collective processes of healing, growth, transformation and coming together and if we don't understand that that's what's happening now it can be very very scary just the level of turbulence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the level of change is is very scary and it looks unpredictable but when we see the horizon that all of this is pointing to towards what it's trying to emerge then we can see where our individual places are and it makes
0: a lot more sense. That's amazing. I have two questions. One is, when I attempt to tell people about the Baha'i faith, one of the stumbling blocks that I often find is that people look toward religion and spirituality, spirituality first and foremost, as a, uh, a system of internal healing and finding peace and serenity internally. And that's what they want from a spiritual practice, right? They want meditation. They want yoga. They want community. They want to mm-hmm. sing together. They want to have tools like Eckhart Tolle talks about so beautifully in his book. You know, specific tools that can help us, you know, find peace in our lives and and whatnot. But they, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and I said. Think about the possibility that religion or spirituality could also be the means for universal peace and justice, that this that spirituality doesn't have to just be about this little garden inside of our hearts, but it can also be about how we relate to each other to make the world more just, equitable, compassionate, loving, kind, and evolved. And I saw this light bulb go off in his head, and he's like, wow, I never really thought about that before. And this is a very well-read, enlightened dude who had never thought about spirituality or, or religious practice having kind of uh, a universals involved or a universal kind of healing aspect to it. So how would you um, address that? We live in this culture, at least I'm in California, so it's a little crazy out here. But the culture out here is is very much I'm looking for spirituality only, only in as much as it helps me find peace inside of my heart. And they don't think about spirituality in a, in a larger global kind of community building context.
1: You know, I will say uh, it's very unsustainable. We cannot heal alone. We never heal alone. Hmm. Uh, we used to be able in earlier times historically to heal in our local communities, But we can't even do that anymore because the world is so completely interdependent. And so we can go on our retreats, we can have our little community of equally spiritually minded friends, but at the end of the day, pollution is for everybody. Climate change is for everybody. And apparently, with our current means, we're not able to resolve climate change. We've got nine years, we've got all the knowledge, but in terms of the willpower and the motivation to change things so radically as they need to be changed within nine years, that's not happening. That's why we have so many youth movements. Why is it not happening? Because we don't connect um, the role of spiritual motivation to all of this. We don't understand yet that we are completely interdependent and this is not just about my private circle. It is about the context that I share with every other fellow human on this globe. and that this context needs to be healed, because it's dysfunctional right now, just like my inner space needs to be healed. And if my inner space gets healed by meditation, prayer, silent retreats, etc, how do we heal? the collective space, the social space, the social context. We have to heal it by um, overcoming these very crude uh, motivations that are defining our social context right now, which is really crude corporate interest, exploitation of the planet. Well, what can take its place? A Mm -hmm. sense of stewardship, a sense of reality is fundamentally sacred, it is spiritual. I mean, if I may, I'd like to really quote uh, Max Planck on this. We don't understand yet that, that reality, the physical reality that we see is an expression of consciousness. And so collective consciousness has to change, and it changes in the same way as individual consciousness, through spiritual awakening and wholeness. So we can't just do the individual. The individual and collective are in this dynamic, which is inseparable. But Max Planck, in 1944, said, All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. Of course, uh, four decades earlier, Baha'u'llah said the same thing. To his followers on his deathbed, he said, A mighty force, a consummate power, lies concealed in the world of being. Fix your gaze upon it and upon its unifying influence and not upon the differences which appear from it. So, what is this force?
0: Look at that. There you go. Yeah. I had those highlighted.
1: It's part of my (laughs) reading
0: last night. Those two quotes back to back are. Just fantastic. Please continue.
1: Well, the essence of that is that that force, as quantum scientists are telling us now, is consciousness. Hmm. And consciousness pervades all realities. And the state of consciousness is reflected in the state of reality. So if our planet right now is in a complete climate crisis, well, that's the crisis of our collective consciousness. And so we cannot just heal individually, but be collectively in a climate crisis because we'll still burn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so the same spiritual awakening that we apply individually has to be applied collectively.
0: And throughout your book, you refer continuously to the Baha'i faith as um, a way to kind of frame this paradigm. You say... This new revelation proclaimed the unity of religion and combined the mystical with the social and the global into a concrete and revolutionary methodology of collective illumination and transformation. That's your, that's your sentence. Can you tell us how and why the Baha'i faith is the key to this collective transformation and this leap of consciousness?
1: very clear example comes to mind obviously this is a vast question because there's many facets to this faith but one specific example comes clearly to mind. The principle of collective work in society that the Baha'i faith raises is the principle of consultation. And consultation becomes the litmus test of our spiritual healing as individuals because the extent to which we have truly found inner peace, we're able to consult with fellow human beings in a truly detached, respectful, collaborative way. We're able to deep listen to different perspectives, which may even appear to clash at times. And through this process, organically, we can come up with solutions that work for the whole. And so uh, the Baha'i practice of consultation is an example of what Abdu'l-Baha spoke of as walking the spiritual path with practical feet. So our spiritual development is only as good as what we're able to manifest in the social realm. In other words, um, at every point, our personal spiritual work informs the level at which we operate operate socially and the social challenges we take on towards our collective sustainable future give us feedback on our spiritual condition and on what we need to work more with internally. Patience with differences, ability to consult across differences and and wide diversity, uh, ability to deep listen, to find collective organic solutions. I mean, these are tremendously challenging practices. They're essentially spiritual practices. And the Baha'i faith has a lot to say about that. Um, Coming into the realization of our oneness, another example uh, of what the Baha'i faith raises as a standard for spiritual maturity in this age. If I look at you and my focus is on all the many ways in which we're different and possibly incompatible, my spiritual maturity needs to deepen (laughs) uh, to where I can look and see our differences, but I also can see the oneness that is deeper than our differences. I, I have to be able to see your soul and the souls of all these other people that I may not agree with. Uh, and speak to their souls. I mean, what does that take from a person to be able to speak to the souls of people that you may fundamentally disagree with? What an amazing social practice is that? That those are the kind of things that the, the Baha'i faith really raises as a standard. And then uh, in, in, current, in recent decades, what Baha'is globally do is creating these open circles where uh, people from every conviction are welcome to come in and be exposed to this elevating spiritual language, engage it, and respond to it. Hmm. So it's, it's quite a transformative social practice again. It's just really changing social culture without imposing beliefs on people, without imposing new identities, without imposing anything, really transforming the way we Think about society. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot more that can be said, but I think I'll just stop here.
0: Well, it, it, there is, and uh, but that that's fantastic, and it reminds me of that just that that little that little series of words that was in the last letter from the Universal House of Justice is that Baha'is should be focused on that precious point of unity between people, um, and we live in a culture right now, at least in America. I can't speak for everyone who's listening who might be in Mongolia or. Samoa right now, but um, we we are focused completely on the differences, and there are some significant differences. But um, there's a phrase you used in here very briefly that I that that struck me, and I had to highlight it. Um, I'd never heard it before, and you said this process described as showing up through sacred activism and speaking truth to power. Um, What do you mean by sacred activism?
1: So that's a term that actually was uh, put forth by Andrew Harvey and I was uh, quoting him. Andrew Harvey speaks of sacred activism as an activism that is informed by a spiritual perspective. So this is his own way of basically paraphrasing what Bahá'u'lláh was speaking about in the middle of the 19th century. In the middle of the 19th century, Bahá'u'lláh was saying that we have to transform ourselves as we also transform society, that we can't retreat and be monks and uh, expect that society will improve from our individual spiritual practices. And we also cannot be revolutionaries um, without... um, Undergoing that spiritual awakening and transformation, and so, uh, in his own way, uh, Andrew Harvey reframes that by speaking and writing about social uh, sacred activism, which is activism that is inspired by a deep spiritual perspective and understanding, and he says that the two are inseparable. Spiritual consciousness and social consciousness are inseparable. That's basically his concept of
0: sacred wow. activism. That's so that's so Baha'i, and that and that just really I know. That resonated with me so much. Like, oh, that's what we are. We're sacred activists.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Ah. But you know, uh, one of the reasons, one of the many things that inspired me to work on this book is that this Baha'i integral perspective, which was revealed in the middle of the 19th century, which is now being lived and acted out of by the majority of progressive people all over the world, is uh, oftentimes unknown. Oftentimes people don't know in what their work and their philosophies are actually rooted. When we have uh, the um, integral theory, when Ken Wilber talks about integral theory, Uh, it was important for me to convey to him that here's the roots of integral theory in the 19th century. Take a look. Um, Sacred activism. That was Abdul Baha. Mm. So, Mm. uh, but we are rediscovering people are rediscovering these ideas, these ideas that permeated collective consciousness becoming full circle here. How, um, this force that permeates everything, this force of higher consciousness, when uh, it signals the next stage of human collective evolution and releases that into human consciousness, it permeates human consciousness and people don't often know where their thinking is actually coming from.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. On my personal journey, um... I have had to uh, essentially hit bottom several times in order to have uh, a necessary personal transformation. So it is through times of tremendous anguish and suffering and in the, mm-hmm. the, the and the fire of that um, that I came out eventually the other side a little bit stronger, a little bit clearer and a little and, definitely much more on track. And I I imagine that a lot of people listening can relate to that. That is a, a universal. Is this what is going to happen collectively? Does it have to happen collectively? Does humanity in its turbulent adolescence, as we're told, need to kind of like crash and burn with the forces of disintegration, overtaking those of integration and humanity has to go to some kind of like rehab and like... Um, and come out the other side? Is that an inevitability?
1: I don't know if it's inevitable. I am an optimist. I believe uh, it can be avoided, but my experience tells me that it's really hard to get our attention. And so uh, the role of pain and suffering just can't be underestimated. In fact, uh, I wanted to just read a very brief Quote from page 122 where I speak about the role of pain and suffering which seems to be very fundamental to human transformation. It takes a lot of heartache to come to realize how clogged our internal channels are with ideas, assumptions, expectations and beliefs. Pain forces us to dig deeper rather than search the surface of reality. It cracks us open and makes us more willing to listen inward and hear beyond conditioned thinking. Suffering breaks down mindsets. Now, will I say that suffering is the only way to break down mindsets? No. The attraction to truth, beauty, and goodness is another very powerful force. But how much do we listen to that attraction? Mm. And how often are our inner channels clogged so we don't hear our own deepest longing? We don't understand that deepest longing. So I don't know how inevitable it is, but it sure does appear quite inevitable right now because we're still not listening. Mm-hmm. We've got nine years before climate change change becomes irreversible, and we're still trying to do business as usual. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's apparent that it's very hard to get our attention when change is in order.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's swing back around to your story as a Baha'i. How did you uh, hear about the Baha'i faith?
1: You know, um, I was invited to a talk on women's issues. And I was at a very, very low point in my life. I was in the middle of a very devastating, painful divorce. I had come out of a pretty strong patriarchy. I had a lot of pain and anguish and anger in my heart. And a friend invited me to this talk. And she said it was a Baha'i fireside. I had no idea what that meant, but the topic was of interest to me. And uh, in that fireside spoke a Nigerian lady whom I will remember for the rest of my life. She, was, uh, she had uh, Native African dress and a headdress. She was so dignified, the way she sat and spoke about the appalling condition of women in Africa and the treatment of girls and women. And there was such radiance and serenity about her and such power. We've been talking about power and dignity. And I looked at this woman and I thought, why is she not angry? Where where is the rage? (laughs) What does she know that I don't know? And that's how my uh, quest began. And I was 32 at the time. And so I started to read and find out more. And then the next thing that really struck me is, wow, this is macro development at its best. I'm in the middle of a doctoral program. I'm constantly studying stages of development in adulthood. And nobody has told me anything about the macro stages of, of development of collective consciousness. Why why am I not being taught about collective evolution of consciousness? And I'm a developmentalist. So that was the second thing. So I started to read very widely, and uh, it took about a year. And probably the hardest thing for me was to open up to prayer. My mm-hmm. heart, my intellect was completely aligned with what I was hearing and learning. Mm-hmm. But my heart was very hurt and very distrustful from the treachery that I spoke about earlier. And this thing about prayer, I had seen religion really betray people in my context. Um, so prayer was very difficult. And then I remember that a friend exposed me to one particular prayer that sounded so poetic and so beautiful and Again, talk about a universal spiritual language that makes no claims, but it just calls to the deepest sense of truth, beauty, and goodness in you. That was that prayer. I couldn't help but hear it. It just had such an effect on me. And from there, it was a shift.
0: Do you remember which prayer it was?
1: Of course. Creating me a pure heart. Can, can I share the whole prayer? Please. Yes, thank you. Create in me a pure heart, O my God, and renew a tranquil conscience in me, O my hope. Through the Spirit of Power, confirm thou me in thy cause, O my best beloved, and by the light of thy glory, reveal unto me thy path, O thou, the goal of my desire. Through the power of thy transcendent might, Lift me up unto the heaven of thy holiness, O source of my being, and by the breezes of thine eternity gladden me, O thou who art my God. Let thine everlasting melodies breathe tranquility on me, O my companion, and let the riches of thine ancient countenance deliver me from all except thee, O my master and let the tidings of the revelation of thine incorruptible essence bring me joy, O thou who art the most manifest of the manifest and the most hidden of the hidden. It's beautiful. So I must say this prayer, it is almost 30 years later and, uh, it still just goes deep to my heart and soul because it helps me understand my own journey and the journeys of others.
2: Hmm.
1: As this quest for truth, beauty, and goodness, that the first half of my life, I didn't understand that's what was driving me. And that's why I stumbled along so much because I didn't understand that's what was happening. And so many of the lights I accompany now, people come, they don't understand what's driving them. And so they're floundering in every direction for anything that seems a little more true or a little more beautiful or a little better. So understanding the depth of this quest really sets us free and heals us.
0: Hmm. That's gorgeous. Um, It's interesting, I've talked about this before on the show, but I feel like we live in a world, like in in my community, in my milieu, in, in Southern California, a lot of people meditate. It's very popular. There's meditation classes and Zooms and apps and yoga classes where they meditate. Um, and in the central part of the United States, a lot of people pray because they're going to church and they're praying, but they don't meditate. And people out here don't pray. They only meditate. Um, but I think too. One of the things I love so much about just the act of prayer is the act of prayer is the act of humility because you're saying essentially, I am uh, disconnected and I, I lack uh, power, but there is a force, you were talking about that force, that is connecting and has all power. And so when you beseech, you surrender, you commune, you know, all of those kind of, that sacred activism of prayer is, um, is an ultimate act of humility that uh, humanity needs right now.
1: So yes, um, you said it beautifully. This is a profound experience of humility. It's a profound experience of humility and contemplation of true reality, of reality at the deepest level. And from that does come a new sense of what we're capable of, what we're ready and willing to do in the world.
0: Nice. Most of the audience of this particular podcast is Baha'i. It's at least two-thirds Baha'i, but we definitely have a good quarter of our listeners um, or more that are uh, seekers or Baha'i-friendly or whatnot. but. I know for Baha'is, there's often a feeling of kind of overwhelm and pessimism and teaching is so tough and we're not kind of headed in the direction we feel like we should be and we we wish we were so much further along than we actually are. What can you say to the Baha'is that are listening right now? What tools can you give them? Where would you ask them to put their focus in their work?
1: My personal experience, Rain, is that Every soul is hungry for truth, beauty, and goodness. And if we just learn to hear that and see that hunger and put forth this exquisite spiritual language, people recognize it. So we don't have to try to convince people of anything, but just respond to the hunger with a language that that elevates, that opens the heart and the soul, that speaks to the deepest part of us. It is that language that we have. We have to just learn to use that language in a way that is attuned and responsive to the soul that is across from us. And things happen. Just the other day, I was talking about this spiritual language at a webinar, and a woman wrote in the chat, um, I am so attracted to the language of Baha'u'llah. She had just started reading. She says, such perfect beauty. That was just her experience. That was her response. I have in uh, chapter five, the story of a woman. And of course, these are all composite profiles, but that was the story of a woman whose whole life transformed as little by little she became exposed to this elevating, ennobling, and redefining spiritual language. Everything changed. In fact, there's quite a few stories in the book of people like that. So all we have to do is really share this uh, language of truth, beauty, and goodness, and, and not worry.
0: Hmm. And we're called upon that in slightly different ways. Terms by the Universal House of Justice, they have been really stressing having meaningful and uplifting conversations. And that's essentially what you're doing. And in those conversations, to stress you know, truth, beauty, and goodness. Is that was that was that it?
3: The ancient Greeks recognized that when we speak about God, we're actually referring to our sense that there is absolute truth, absolute goodness, and absolute beauty in this world. And that's what we aspire towards. That's what we uh, are attracted to. And there is a Baha'i prayer that, forgive my paraphrase, but it says essentially that the memory of thy reality is imprinted in my soul. So we come into this realm already with the memory of the existence of this absolute truth, absolute beauty, absolute goodness. And it is that aspiration to reunite with that absolute reality. That is our deepest motivation.
0: Hmm. 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 That's beautiful. Elena Mostakova, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insight with us today. Fascinating conversation. I feel like what you're addressing is a a missing piece in the Baha'i spiritual puzzle of our spiritual journeys. How personal transformation relates to universal transformation. And we often think about kind of in theoretical terms, kind of as sociologists, like, oh, grassroots movements for peace and unity and, you know, transforming communities and stuff. But we think about it on, or address it on kind of a theoretical level. And there's a lot of Baha'i books that are out there like that. But to take it much closer to home, to see that. It's a shifting of consciousness, both personally and a shifting of consciousness planetarily, um, that holds so much power and uh, meaning and such a clear way forward. Um, for those listening, I really urge you to pick up a copy of Global Unit of Healing. It's available on Amazon. You can download it on your Kindle and and whatnot. It's just fantastic. I'm only you know a third of the way through it. Um, but uh, there's there's so much in here. I feel like it's one I'm going to come back to again and again. I want to share this book with my friends. Um, uh, Dr. Mostakova, where else can people find you on the web or in the world?
3: <laughs> First, I wanted to say thank you, Rain, for listening so deeply to what My book has to offer hearing it so deeply. I really want to thank you for that. Um, As for where to find me, elenamustakova.net. Also, globalsocialhealth.org forward slash ENG because Global Social Health will take you to the Bulgarian version unless you put ENG there, which will be the English version. Those are two places. There is a channel with my talks on YouTube but that's probably
0: enough. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being a guest on Baha'i Blogcast. And uh, I I wish you the best uh, uh, with your work. And I just encourage you to please get this super important message out there. Please be tireless and indefatigable in, um, uh, in sharing uh, what you've uncovered because it's uh, truly inspiring.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.